There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast, brought to you by Eastman's Hunting Journals. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Time Studio right here in Clark Fork, Idaho. Snowy Clark Fork, Idaho, that is. Uh, I was just talking to uh, the guest we're having on today, and and uh, was we were actually supposed to record this two nights ago. And instead, we had you know the blizzard from hell come in um and knock our power out and everything so uh jordan sillers is joining me today he's a writer and he wrote a really good article regarding well the article name is inside the campaign to divorce hunters from wildlife policy and that's kind of the the main focus of this uh discussion and it's going to be surrounded by that so jordan brother appreciate you joining me man yeah absolutely Uh, happy to be here and again, I uh, appreciate you working with me on Snowcoplex here. We had <laughs> yeah, no, no problem, no problem at all. So you are a are are you like an actual writer for Meat Eater, or are you like a freelance writer? Tell me a little bit about you, man. We've never met. Yeah, good, good question. Um, so I started freelancing for Meat Eater. Uh, all the way back in 2020. So, uh, between 2020 and, um, about a year ago now in 2022, I was writing about an article a week for them. Um, and then in April of 2022, um, I came on full time as an editor. Nice. Yeah. So- yeah. I was, I was happy they were able to make a spot for me. And that's like a remote position because you're down in Texas, huh? It is. Yep. Yeah. I, I'm in East Texas and then, you know, obviously meat eaters based in Bozeman. So I try yeah. to get up there uh, as much as I can. Well, good for you, man. That's awesome. I I've always been, and I, you know, I've said this before when I, when I get writers on the show, I'm always, you know, thrilled to talk to a writer and I'm always interested in this, uh, this career choice as a writer and, and specifically as an outdoor writer, I think it's just a, I, I'd love to, I wish I was good enough to be able to do that for a living. Um, I'm not, I have a hard time spelling my name. And so um, it doesn't work for me, man, but <laughs> I'm glad yeah. we have people like you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's not something I planned on, uh, to be honest. Um, in college, Tell me about I, that. Yeah. And in, in college, um, I thought I would be an English professor because, you know, I, I love my English classes. I loved uh, reading and writing. And that was kind of the only thing that I could imagine myself doing. Um, so I actually, uh, went to, to grad school for English. Um, and I'm, I'm almost finished with uh, a PhD in English from Baylor. Um, but during the course of that process, I kind of fell into outdoor writing really as a way to fund my hobby. Um, you know, it's expensive, right? As, as we all know, all, all the gear and the trips and everything. Um, and so I figured, why not, why not write about the things that I'm doing anyway? Um, so I, I started with that and kind of as I worked my way through grad school, you know, looking at the landscape of academia, um, and, and also just how much I enjoyed the, the outdoor writing and, and kind of the outdoor industry. Um, I decided to, to pursue that full time. Um, so, you know, when I say I fell into it, that's a, a pretty, apt kind of image <laughs> because oh it's yeah not that, I, that i really pursued or, or planned on doing but i love it it's it's a great a great job so that um it, obviously growing up that wasn't your dream was to be an outdoor writer then this is just kind of happenstance actually that's a good uh that's a good strategy man hey, get you get your next deer rifle or something because you wrote some articles and got paid for it. that's not a bad gig it's not. It's not. Yeah. And I was doing um, I was doing gun writing for a while. And so that's a great gig. I mean, you know, because mm-hmm. companies will send you stuff 
um, and you can test it, play with it, decide whether you like it. And then, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll give you a, a pretty good deal if you want to buy it. Huh. Now that's fantastic. So where did you grow up in Texas? I didn't. Um, so I, my background is uh, a little bit complicated. So I was born in Canada, actually. Uh, my, my kind of extended family is from Canada, but I moved down to, um, Austin when I was a kid, about seven years old, uh, for my dad to go to school. And then he found a job at a college in Virginia. So we moved there when I was about 10. So my parents are still in Northern Virginia. Um, when people ask, where'd you grow up? That's kind of the short answer is, is Virginia. Um, I'm in Texas now because of school, but also because my wife is from Texas. Her whole family is from Texas. Um, so it was kind of a, a good spot for us to land. Do you like, so you grew up in Virginia and now you're in Texas is, what is it about Texas? Because I, I'm always curious about this. Everybody that's from Texas seems to be really proud of the fact that they're from or living in Texas. And, you know, um, I, I, and I'll be honest, man, I love Texas. When I visit Texas, I love Texas. It's just between the cultural aspect of it. Uh, there's a ton of hunting opportunity. The people are just always, you know, uh, they're, they're great to be around. They're like, you know, what, what you think of, of when you're, when you're thinking of America, for some reason, Texas is just always that place, you know? And, yeah. And also the, you know, the great barbecue. Uh, oh, yeah. is Texas kind of like a, a permanent spot you think for you? I think so. Yeah. We, we love it out here. We're in East Texas. So we're about an, an hour, um, East of Dallas. Uh, and it's, it's a great place to live. I mean, I, I honestly hesitate to, to even, um, recommend it because I don't want it to be overrun. <laughs> uh, uh, we're getting a, a lot of people, people coming in into Texas. Um, but yeah, it's great. The people are great. Um, the, you know, I, I like the, the, the culture out here. And like you say, lots of opportunities to, to hunt and fish. Yeah. Um, Texas, you know, it's, it's a private land state. So you kind of got to navigate that whether, you have a lease or whether you ask for, for hunting permission or whether you have a buddy who owns some, some property. Um, but you know, we, we figure it out and we, we, we get a lot of deer, a lot of pigs, you know, pretty much anything you, you want to hunt, you can hunt down here. Is it true? I was listening. I don't remember. I think it was Joe Rogan. Um, he was talking about how there's elk all over the place and you don't even need a tag for elk. Yeah, I don't know a lot about that. Um, I, I wouldn't say all over the place. Um, you know, maybe out, out west. Um, yeah. that's not something that, that I've looked into a lot. Hmm. I'm just trying to build, so, I, I, I'm trying to build up Texas enough so that like out of staters choose to go there versus coming here to Idaho. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's, you know, high fence operations where, where you can get elk. I, I have no doubt. Yeah. About um, but you know, there's there's usually a significant cost involved to that gotcha gotcha um i uh i don't know i might be coming down to texas in uh in the summer this year so we might have to grab a cup of coffee or something so well cool man um i again i appreciate you joining me to because i really what I, i wanted to talk about um is this article that you wrote and the article I'll just kind of share it here. Let me pull it back up. So, guys, if you're listening, if you jump on the, you know, meateater.com um, and go to an article called Inside the Campaign to Divorce Hunters from Wildlife Policy. So, uh, and, and I guess not to kick it off with my own monologue here, but the idea just from the headline um, and and my take on reading it is there is a concerted effort from these animal activist groups to infiltrate things like wildlife commissions uh, and and legislation uh, or, or I'm sorry, legislators uh, in an effort to achieve the results that they want to achieve. And and sometimes that means, you know, we've seen this in um, Washington. We just had a big discussion last week with Sportsman's Alliance regarding the, the wildlife commissioners there that are not even confirmed and they are going against the grain as what you would think or imagine a wildlife commission is in terms of being responsible for hunting and fishing and just wildlife management in general. So um, that's why this this article really piqued my interest. So, Jordan, can you give us like an, uh, the synopsis of this article and where 
the, like the concept or the idea this came about? Sure. Yeah. So the, this is something that, um, you know, the, the people in like the wildlife policy arena have been, um, concerned about for several years now. Um, but I think it really kind of came into the, it, it was brought to the attention of a lot of hunters last year. Um, when, uh, the wildlife society, which is a, um, it's a society of, of wildlife biologists, wildlife experts. They have a, a yearly conference and they allowed, um, several of, of these groups to, of these, um, you know, animal rights protectionist groups, um, to host, uh, a, a panel discussion. I think one of them, uh, hosted a booth. Um, they may have sponsored one of the, the talks. Um, and, and this got a lot of pushback, uh, understandably from the, the, the outdoor and kind of hunting and fishing and the sports community. community. Yeah. 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 And, and the, the reason for that, um, is, is because what, what they, the, the problem they see is that the way that wildlife is managed in states caters too much to hunters. Um, they, they think that, that the wildlife commissions, the wildlife boards are, um, they care too much about what hunters think. They focus too much on game species at the expense of other species. And so the, the campaign is to change the makeup of these wildlife commissions, um, to, to focus less on what, uh, what hunters want and more on kind of something else, right? They're, they're not always, they're not always totally clear on kind of what, what else they want, except for, uh, they say, you know, we want to to conserve all species, not just game species. Now, they don't always acknowledge that oftentimes what's good for white-tailed deer, what's good for squirrels, what's good for, you know, name your game species is great for a host of other species, right? Because they all use the, the same habitat. Um, but that's the general idea. They see hunters as too influential and they want to uh, to balance the scales, basically. And these are groups like the Humane Society of the United States, the Sierra Club, Wild Earth Guardians. I'm reading right out of your, your article here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, uh, if you really want to kind of read the the philosophy behind this movement, uh, Wildlife for All is, is a great website to go to. They kind of articulate um, what they see as the problem and their solution. Uh, and then if you look at like their board of directors, their staff, you know, it's full of folks from the Humane Society, Sierra Club, Project Coyote, um, all these groups. Right. So you can kind of see where they're coming from. You can see what their their position is. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think I'm going to I'm going to actually pull that up so we can kind of come back to that. But uh, one of the bullet points that you have in this this article is overthrowing the North American model of wildlife conservation. Um, and, and you kind of get into, or, or you kind of detail, you know, some of the benefits of the, the, the model, uh, what it's done for conservation here in, in North America and the, you know, money it's raised and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I agree with all that. What, what I get concerned about, Jordan, is, is like the concept of overthrowing the North American model of wildlife conservation. Why, why that scares me, if you will, is, I do believe if if people have been paying attention to some of the episodes I've been doing over the winter regarding this topic, um, they, they'll already know this. But there's there's a lot of concern from my end surrounding like the sportsman community, how we how we portray ourselves, how we present ourselves, how we interact with each other, and then how we interact with these animal activists organizations or or these preservationist groups. Um, protectionist groups like, uh, what, what was that? The name of that one? Wildlife for all. Mm-hmm. The way we interact and, and the way that we behave as if we are somewhat asleep at the, uh, at the will, uh, you know, like this, like there isn't this big problem barreling down the mountain at us. This, when you say something like overthrowing the North American model of wildlife conservation, I believe that that is a potential reality. If we don't have some kind of course correction amongst the sportsman community, what what is your take on that? Am I off base? And or, or, or what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, and that was one of my big questions, kind of going into this. Right? Was how big of how big how much should we learn about this? How big of a deal 
to this. Um, and the the conclusion I kind of I came to was this this is certainly has the potential to be a really really big deal, and it's also not focused just on Washington State, right? Which has kind of become the lightning rod. Um, bills yeah. to to restructure wildlife commissions have been proposed across the country. Now, I think it's it's also true that not a lot of these bills have been successful. Um, sportsmen have they've shown commission meetings, they've shown up to committee meetings, and then back. Um, and we haven't really seen uh, legislatively these commissions being restructured in the ways that that these groups want. But that doesn't mean that it. Uh, that the threat is over, right? Because they they can introduce a bill every year, um, and you know it often takes four or five, six years for any kind of bill to get enough traction and get through both you know legislative chambers. Um, and so it's something that will require you know literally e- eternal vi- vigilance, right? Because mm-hmm. the threat the threat's not going away. Um, if anything, it's it's increasing, and so um, you know. I think we've done a pretty good job in the state legislatures fending off these bills, but uh, you know, it's something we should be increasingly concerned with. I think. Well, I think the uh, just like the the general public, the non-hunting public, uh, is is where a lot of concern comes out of this because these these groups are very effective at propagating to folks like this to to kind of demonize the sportsman community. And and if if we let them be the only ones that have the voice, this is where we're going to get ourselves into a lot of trouble because it's really easy to take the, you know, five percent of of bad apples out there that that portray uh, the hunting community in a bad light and mm-hmm. and make it look like that's the the majority of sportsmen. You know, the that's the that's what makes up the the core of the sportsman community are these these jerks that uh, they're poaching or they're treating wildlife badly or they're you know showing some of these questionable things on social media posts that have no real context as my buddy chris Rowe puts it you know uh and he's right um and that's where they're going to when they start infiltrating some of these commissions or what besides besides getting onto like the commissions can you kind of walk us through what else you see uh, going on in regards to this topic, you know, they're they're like, what are your bullet points? Changing the comp- composition of state game agencies is that? Are you talking like beyond the commission itself with that? Um, what what do you mean? Can you rephrase that that question for me? Like, what else besides? So we all know in Washington, the governor Governor Inslee has done a great job at appointing essentially animal activists. Um, I mean, there's no reason to beat around the bush with what like Lorna Smith is. Uh, these people are animal activists. They are not looking out for the best interest of hunters. So the commission is one aspect, but there's way more to a, like a state game agency than just the commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's other ways to like here in Idaho, uh, our commission got flat out bypassed, um, regarding hunting with uh, mechanical broadheads or uh, and lighted knocks and you know so that that was bypassed through the legislature and so there's there's that issue where where these animal activists can can approach the legislatures and and lobby with them to uh, kind of do this wildlife manage, management through the ballot box kind of thing mm-hmm. um which we've seen that in Colorado we've seen that in Maryland we've seen it in California and New Mexico and and obviously in Washington um yeah. outside of like appointing non-sportsman type commissioners is there something else that you think the hunting public should be aware of that is going on yeah yeah so it it the the kind of the the three main ways that these groups push policy that that people told me about um and in, in reporting this article uh were through the legislature right so just proposing bills that require um for example in in minnesota there's a bill right now that would prohibit a wolf hunt even if the species is delisted right so that's just mm-hmm. like the kind of the most heavy-handed we're just going to push a bill that is going to require the you know the fish and game agency to take a, a particular position um there's also the you know ballot measures right in states where 
um, that is a little bit easier to do or where that's a possibility. Um, they, they get, you know, however many hundred, hundred and, you know, 80, 200,000 people to sign a, a ballot measure. It gets on the ballot. And now all of a sudden, if, you know, 50.1% of people in the state vote for that, that's the policy now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another, another avenue. And then the, the wildlife commissions, the way that it was described to me is, um, in certain states, they've been unsuccessful in the legislature. They've been unsuccessful uh, with these ballot measures. And so they're turning to the, the game commissions and trying to put, you know, folks who are sympathetic to them on these commissions. Um, you know, that strikes me as, as more of a long term type of strategy. But, you yes. know, like in, in Washington state, it didn't take very long. Um, I think Wisconsin's dealing with this, too. You know, one election. If your if your state if the governor appoints everyone on that commission, one gubernatorial election um, can really make a huge difference. Um, yeah. So those are kind of the main ways that that they seem to be to be pushing, and those are the places where hunters really need to be paying attention. Can you kind of explain uh, again one of the bullet points here? More than one kind of anti-hunting uh, for the mm-hmm. listeners. Uh, give us give us like the the synopsis of what that means. Yeah. So uh, this is something, again, the people I spoke with really emphasized. Um, there's obviously a, a big threat from the, the animal rights side, and that's the focus of this article. Um, but game commissions can be politicized in a lot of different ways. Um, and the, the the people that are put on those commissions can have priorities that aren't always in line with um, people who love to hunt and fish. So uh, one example that, that, that people pointed out is if, if commissions tend to favor landowners and kind of landowner, um, you know, uh, interests over hunters. Obviously, landowners are hugely important in conservation. They're, they're major, they're major players. They're, you know, we, we rely on them, um, to, to conserve a lot of these species. We rely on them for access. Um, and so it's not about kind of pitting landowners against hunters, but it's another thing to kind of pay attention to. Um, whenever a, a commission seems to be really favoring one group of people, um, it's, it's something to keep in mind, something to, to pay attention to. Um, another thing that, that was brought up, um, is kind of a, a bigger issue at the federal level, um, which is the, the Pittman Robertson funding. Um, and, and that's really interesting because you're getting people from both the, the right side of the aisle, uh, as well as the left side of the aisle saying we should, we should no longer be taxing, you know, guns and ammunition, et cetera, and using that for conservation. Um, on, on the right side, they say it's an infringement on second amendment rights. On the left side, they say, um, they don't like how guns is, are tied to conservation, um, because they don't like, you know, firearms uh having an excuse basically to be good <laughs> it's kind or of it's having kind of any good. kind of leverage yeah because yeah. Of, of the funding and you know interesting you know jordan with with that is it's not even the Pittman robertson money that is generated i mean the vast majority of it is not hunting it's not hunters but yeah. uh it, it would be I'm always surprised by this approach from some folks on the right. They seem a little blinded by the fact that this Pittman Robertson act, that this money gives us a huge seat at the table. And I, I, I don't, I've heard a few people try to justify it and, you know, from political standpoint or, you know, some kind of second amendment, you know, taxation kind of issue. I don't mm-hmm. see it. I, I, I'm no. sorry. I just don't because I like having the leverage. I like having that big ball of wax in our corner that, uh, is, is always there. And so that it just, it, it, it just is like vexing that. Yeah. It would even be approached. I mean, I get it from the, if I was, if I was an animal rights activist, you know, if I was an anti hunting, you know, activist that, uh, maybe I'm the vice president of the, I don't know, Center for Biological Diversity. The first thing I would go after is the Pittman Robertson Act. Mm -hmm. Absolutely the first thing I would go after. And so anyway, I kind of went off on a, on a tangent there. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, I, I'm, I'm kind of equally baffled <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that um, 
if the Pittman Robertson, uh, you know, tax was didn't exist and was proposed today, you know, no one would go for it. Mm-hmm. But but it's it's in place, and you know, the the firearms industry, the the outdoor gear, and like they they think it's great, um, and they are not about to give up, like you say, that leverage, and the fact that someone would would propose that. Um, just from kind of a strategic, like tactical standpoint, seems uh, confusing <laughs> to me. I, I don't know why someone would would do that. Yeah, I don't either. Especially when you look at the fact that uh, these these anti hunting groups are generally the same folks that are anti Second Amendment, right? And so mm-hmm. when when you look at the funding that those organizations are able to generate on an annual basis, we're we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars if you combine them all. Oh yeah. Uh massive, massive amounts of revenue. And and if you got rid of the Pittman Robertson Act, what does that leave us with? You know, the fifty million dollars from RMEF who can't actually really lo- truly lobby. Uh or and and if and these organizations that we have, we were just talking about this on one of my other episodes. Like the amount of revenue and the amount of um memberships in sportsmen's organizations don't even come close to the numbers on the animal activist side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that's a scary prospect. Where, where do you see that going? Where, where do you see all of this going? In fact, I mean, that that's a great question. Um, I think it's obviously concerning that the the percentage that hunters make in the population is going down um, because that could signal uh, kind of a, a loss of um, political influence, right? If, mm-hmm. if your constituency, instead of making up 10% of the population now makes up 4%, um, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty serious problem. Um, and this is a question I, I asked people, I, I asked, would we be seeing these threats if, Hunters still made up that, you know, 8% of the population. Um, and they, they didn't really have a, a super definite answer. Obviously they, they seem to think like, uh, you know, yes, we'd probably still be seeing these threats. They would still be going after us through, you know, the legislature ballots and, and the game commissions. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that that's a, that's still a valid question and still something that I'm kind of trying to figure out. Um, certainly though, that, that is concerning, um, that kind of losing that political capital at the same time, hunters still enjoy a pretty wide support from the general public. You know, I, I think, uh, according to, to these surveys, if you ask people to support red hunting, um, you know, it's in the high eighties, which, yeah. which is great. Um, and the last and one that, was like 86%, I believe. Mm-hmm, yeah. So that, you know, that's a good sign. Um, but will it, will that maintain as the, you know, the country continues to urbanize? Um, if, if hunter numbers remain this percentage of the population, um, you know, it's, it's concerning because the, the thing that one of, one of the kind of main tenants of these groups like Wildlife for All is commissions to, uh, be graphically representative of the population. Right. So think about what that means. If hunters make up 4% of the population, that means 4% of the game commission <laughs> is representative of hunters, yeah. which obviously would be in like a reversal of what it is now. And, you know, terrible for, um, for hunting and fishing. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's yeah, kind that, of a, a rambling way of saying I'm not really sure, but it's we need to we really need to um to pay attention. God, man, can you imagine that? I I'd be curious to know. You know, we were just talking about the uh, when they when they pull the the general public, and we're talking about people that are not hunters and not anti hunters. This is just the general public. Um, the eighty six percent approval uh, that was, and I think that was within the last year, eighteen months or whatever, when that poll came out. I'm su- I'd be super curious to see if something like that was done back in like the early nineties or like the mid eighties or the seventies, mm-hmm. you know, what, what would that look like? You know, because there's, I think Americans and, and, you know, not just Americans, 
it, worldwide hunting has always been part of the human experiment it's just right. it's it's in our nature it's it's what we've always um it's just always been there and and there's never been it's only in recent times has there been an actual effort to uh you know get rid of hunting from like a values kind of standpoint you know where it's mm-hmm. like oh hunting is bad uh because of this and because of that and you know all these fantasies that they throw out there but my my concern, I I suppose when I because I get for some reason I'm just rambling a lot today, buddy. So bear with me. But my my concern with this, you know, that it's 86 percent now. But if if the messaging continues to be as consistent, well funded, and aggressive from the the anti hunting side, how long is it going to take for them to chew away at that 80 86 percent? Because yeah. From 50% to 86%, that's not very much. And if, if you really think about, you know, what are we talking? 36%? That, that is not very far. That's not a very tall mountain for them to climb. And all it takes is, is, uh, I, I, again, I don't mean to keep like throwing hunters under the bus, but it's the bad apples. All it takes is a few of them for these activists to get their hands on to, portray that and display that to the public and and that 86 percent could be i mean you've seen how quickly like a a presidential poll can go from oh you know this guy has 60 percent approval and then one little event and and it's like down in the 40s you know it it could it's it just doesn't take much yeah jordan from like a personal standpoint did you grow up hunting or did you tell me a little bit about your background when it comes to hunting? Sure. So I, I did not grow up hunting. Um, my, my dad, I, I say he, he taught me, uh, to love, he got, he taught me to play basketball and he taught me to love reading two things that I derive a great deal of enjoyment from to this day. Um, but he was not a, a, an outdoorsman. Um, and so this is something that I picked up, um, a, a little bit later in life partly through friends um, and then partly through a desire to, you know, it's, it's become kind of a stereotypical story at this point, uh, but from a desire to um, know where my food comes from mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this is something that, that I, I, I picked up a little bit later in life and obviously it's um, it, it's been great. I've loved it. Um, and, and I'm still learning. I'm still learning a lot. Um, so, yeah. And, and that's kind of partly where I, where I write from too, is, is from that perspective. Um, from that pers- yeah. If, if you've grown up doing it, sometimes it's, you know, you've always known something. Um, you've always known, you know, to, to pay attention to the wind, for example. Um, you don't remember learning it. It's like you've just always known it. Uh, and so I, I try to bring that like new hunters perspective to my articles, um, to, to keep those folks in mind because, you know, I, I was one, um, at this point it's been a while, but you know, I, I still remember being a new hunter. Hmm. And when I just, I just kind of switched over here. I'm now I'm on your like meat eater people, I don't know, biography page or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Let's see. You've got a, you've got a ton of articles as well. Um, what do you say, Jordan, to the people that are out there kind of espousing this, uh, belief that um, there's already too many hunters and we don't need more hunters. Yeah. Uh, and b- because this has been a topic on, on this show and, you know, it's, it's been out there for a while, but um, mm-hmm. I, we, we were just talking about, you know, we generally speaking, the hunting population in, of North America is roughly 5%. Th- mm-hmm. Those are active annual tag holders. Yeah. So you, uh, it's going to go up a little bit when you talk about the guy that goes deer hunting once every couple of years or the, you know, kid that goes turkey hunting every whatever, but they're not annually out there hunting actively. Yeah. So roughly 5%. Um, and I don't have the math as to how that breaks down compared to like 30 to 50 to 60 years ago, you know? Yeah. But. What do you say to the folks out there that are running around and they're like, no, there's, there's, a, we already have too many hunters. We don't need more hunters. Is that something you agree with? Is that a concept you disagree with? I, I'd like to get everybody's take on that. 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's one of the, the, the biggest questions right now, I, I think in our industry. Um, and it, it's a tough one because I, I kind of understand where both sides are coming from because even though the, the percentage that hunters are of the population has decreased, which is a problem for all the reasons we've been talking about, the kind of the, the absolute number of hunters, um, has kind of stayed about the same. Yeah. Right. And and so if we increase that number without increasing the acreage of land available for hunting, um, I totally understand why people say, hey, you know, I used to come out here and I was the only one. And now I see five other groups of hunters. I don't like this. And, you know, it's totally understandable uh, why that would be the case. Um and so it's a tough, I think one of the things that is really important is that we, we do, um, do everything we can to not allow that those huntable acres to shrink. Instead, we expand them. Right. So that's why I think this, this corner crossing debate is, is really important, um, so that we can get access to the, the public land that, you know, is we have the right to hunt on, but we just can't access it. Right. So. Um, increasing the acreage, I think would relieve some of that, uh, some of that overcrowding. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really tough, tough question. I, you know, that, I, I don't have a great answer. No, dude, nobody has a great answer for that one. Um, you know, what's interesting about that question is it doesn't matter how you answer it. You're going to piss somebody off. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. somebody's going to be mad about it, but I, I think it's a discussion that needs to be had because I agree with what you said that the percentage, the, the, you know, the per capita ratio of how many hunters there are um, has decreased fairly significantly. However, the population has increased. So 4% or if it's 5% of the public is our hunters, active hunters, that number is greater than if, you know, if in 1960, it was 20% of the population was, was right. hunters, you know? And so it's, yeah. it's kind of like that, uh, you know, the same way the dollar has decreased in value over the years. And it's the same kind of concept. So, mm-hmm. it, but, but it is, it is one of those things where we do have to be cognizant. I think that there could be an argument made that there's already enough hunters. Um, and there can be an argument made that we don't have enough hunters. Like there, there's good points on both of them. And I've got, I've got a buddy, um, Garrett, you know who you are if you're listening to this, that always wants to debate me on this topic. And I, I initially, like a year ago, I was like, Oh no, we need more hunters. We need more hunters. And, and nowadays I'm like, it, I don't have a strong opinion on that one way or the other. But what I do know is a course correction has to happen in in a sense that hunters by our very nature are focused on hunting and not activism where anti hunting mm. activists are active activists <laughs> that's a mouthful uh and and so there we've got to figure out how we approach this when we're looking at the future of hunting and and we're looking you know 10 years from now and 20 years from now how this looks if if because if we become one percent of the population, I feel like we're in trouble. Like it'll get to the point what you were talking about earlier, where they're going to say, "Well, the commissioners need to represent the um, you know, the 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 same number." Uh, I'm, the the word is totally evading me here. Um, yeah. In in proportion uh, yeah. to to the active hunter. So like you know, if there's ten commissioners and you know there's maybe what a half a commissioner that's pro hunting <laughs> you know what i mean like right. how does that work and that's what yeah. it'll that's what it'll look like and these people are going to have values that are different than ours and and hunting is going to be a thing of the past it's just going to you know I, I i do believe that this thing is fixable and and the future can look bright i think it, it is it, it is a bright future and it can be bright i just believe if we keep going the way we're going, it's not going to happen. What do you see? Uh, because you're you're in the industry, Jordan, and you 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 do a lot of writing. I I always look at writers uh, first because I feel like you guys are like on the cutting edge of all the information that's out there. You kind of dip your toes into a little <laughs> bit of everything, and you 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 know what's going on. You've got a good pulse of the you know marketplace or the community, if you will. Like what what do you think about the future of hunting? What what concerns do you have? Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think one of the things I was I was thinking as as you were talking um, is the different strategies that we have to to combat these things, right? So um, in my article, I talk about uh, kind of basic political advocacy. So you know, go to these committee hearings, make sure that that your legislators um, know that that they're going to be held accountable to hunters if they vote on on these bad bills. Um, that's something I think we all we all know, uh, and you know, it it takes some sacrifice, it takes some some time and effort to do it. I think everyone should do it. Um, but another thing I was thinking is part of the problem with hunters declining in terms of their percentage of the population uh, is that fewer people know a hunter, right? So if if you hear from these groups, oh, hunters. They're, they're terrible. You know, they, they torture animals and then they kill them and then they leave them out there and they don't eat any of them. If you don't know any hunters, you might think, Oh man, you know, that's awful. I'm going to vote uh, for this policy. But if you know a hunter, you know, if, if, if I know that, that, uh, you know, Jim eats the whole animal, if I know that, he, uh, um, tries to make a, as clean and ethical of a shot as possible, that that messaging is going to be far less effective. Um, so so that's kind of one piece. But what that requires, I think, is that hunters are vocal about what they do, which in today's, you know, depending on where you live, um, in, in today's society can be a little bit uh, nerve wracking, right? A little bit awkward, a little bit embarrassing. Um, but really important and i think it's more important now than ever to be outspoken about what it is that we do how we hunt um all of the laws and policies and you know tags and licenses that are required uh to hunt all of the ways that the money is used just really in our personal lives and our day-to-day interactions with people being willing to to explain those things um i think is just really important because that i think is is a kind of an antidote to to the messaging that says hunters are cruel, hunters are evil. Um, we we don't want hunters anymore, uh, and so I, I think that'll be really important. You know, you make a that's a great point. The I, I love the line I wrote it down. Fewer people know a hunter will know a hunter. Um, and the reason why I think that that's a great line is because that that can actually go two ways. Where you're talking about if somebody. And I'll give you a great example, man. I was, I, I used to work for this. This was years ago. I used to work for this company. They were, they were a manufacturer and, uh, we would have these video conferences all the time, like weekly where we kind of get on the, the zoom. Like this was before zoom got super popular because of COVID, you know, uh, because it said it was a nationwide company. We all kind of ran our own little territories. So anyway. I had a relationship with this guy that worked at the company in a different state, uh, for years. Um, and, and I knew him, uh, we spoke on the phone often, uh, and then we end up going to this conference where him and I, we, you know, get to having a couple of beers or whatever, come to find out this dude is like this big time hunter. Like he, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, it's back in the day where it, not everybody has an Instagram and not everybody has, you know, it, I guess we just weren't really connected. There was, there was obviously Facebook and all that, but, um, Gosh, what year was this? This had to be like 2013-ish, sometime around there, 2014-ish. So anyway, come to find out, I'd known this guy for a long time, had a lot of conversations with him, and I never knew he was a hunter. And the problem with that is why? Like, not that we need to be out there saying, hey, hey, my name's Jordan, uh, and I'm a hunter. Uh, by the, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like a bunch of vegans where the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, Hey, my name's Joe and I'm a vegan. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not what I'm getting at. But just when you have, I I wonder sometimes if people are afraid to talk about or identify this, this lifestyle, uh, in like their professional environment or, or, or church circles or other social circles that they might be involved in. Um, and so that's a problem because if you knew this guy you, on a personal level, you knew he was a, he was a morally acceptable person. He, he you know, he had a good head on his shoulders. Uh, he, he's kind of a guy you would think is an ethical hunter just because you know him personally outside mm-hmm. of the hunting space. 
so there's that aspect and i think you i think you nailed it with that and fewer people are going to know that hunter and so i would encourage hunters to not be so shy about the fact that you are a hunter however the other side to that because you you put it from a standpoint of that would offer activists and non-hunters some context to what a hunter is right and and it would destroy the credibility of the anti-hunter messaging uh, about how cruel and unethical hunting hunters are if somebody knows that person on a on a personal level to to understand that that's just not how they are on a you know personally um but on the other side to that we have this stuff going on on social media uh we we just talked about this last week on the show where you know this they're cruising down this dirt road in the back of a Jeep chasing an ostrich and just blow it away. And then yeah. they post it with no context. Mm-hmm. So when we're out there running around talking about how ethical we are and how, you know, we're concerned about conservation and we're the true conservationist, hunting is conservation and all this stuff, that destroys our argument. And because the, the and the problem with that is that's like less than 1% of hunters that do that kind of shit. That's why it's yeah. so frustrating. And so I, I, I don't know. I guess I went on on a, you know, a little too long there. But I just wanted to point out I really like that line that you made. Fewer people are going to know a hunter if there are a few less in the population to be able to relate that to like a a realistic level of understanding as to what hunters are. Yeah. Um, but there's that other side that we do, we do definitely have to be a little bit cognizant of. So yeah. Well, and I think I think those like those personal connections, like having a friend who's a hunter, his or her, um, uh, like the way that they approach hunting, that's more powerful, I think, both than the the anti-hunting messaging, but also I think it's more powerful than the viral, you know, horrible um, ostrich hunting video. Yeah. Right. Because, because people, you know, they they care about their friends more than strangers like the most obvious thing anyone's ever said um but i think we can use that to 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 give them the the truth to give them good information about what hunting is um and so yeah those those personal um those personal connections i think are really important um you mentioned social media and you know this is another kind of question that um I'm also a, a bit um, uh, conflicted on, right? Because I think that social media, like you say, can be really harmful to hunters, um, but it, it can also be a good tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. To, to, to communicate to people that you are a hunter without, like you say, being, you know, it being the first thing in, in conversation. So, you know, you have your, your Instagram feed, that's like your family and, you know, random meals that you've had. But then, oh, there's one of you out in the field uh, with a deer. Now, I think what's important there, um, and not to you know plug meat eater too much, um, but to to post that picture of you know yourself, the grip and grin, that's fine. But what I also like to do, um, and I don't do it all the time, but is to also post in, you know among those pictures the meal that you made with that animal, or you know with venison in general. Um, because I think people, even if they're not hunters, they support hunting and, and the support for hunting goes up. If you say, do you support hunting for food, right? Yeah. Adding that for food in there really helps people say, okay, you know, I eat cows. Um, it would be hypocritical of me to, to oppose hunting if they're eating the meat from that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so using social, social, uh, social media, to show people what we do with the animals after that grip and grin, I think can also be really effective. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a powerful way to tell the story of our humanistic connection to what hunting is. And and Mm -hmm. I think that uh, social media, like you said, it it can be very damaging in it, but it can also be very positive. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's all about balance and, and compartmentalizing this stuff, you know, uh, for example, I, I, I'm still like a dinosaur and I have a Facebook, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's my yeah. personal Facebook. And so I'll post stuff of my, you know, kids or, or my dogs or our homestead or, you know, complain about the weather. Sometimes I'll post stuff about this podcast on it or whatever. Um, 
but that so that the people I'm talking to with on on that social media page uh they're compartmentalized way differently than like my Instagram for this podcast mm-hmm. because the the Instagram for the podcast is is you know the the western huntsman here's the show here's a cool hunting video here's a cool hunting picture here's a grip and grin uh here's what we made out of it that and that the people that are um consuming that content are generally speaking very like-minded and and we share that i interact with their pages they do that and I, and they interact with my page uh but going back to like um the facebook uh, i i'm not going to post certain pictures of hunting because let's face it, hunting can be pretty brutal, right? And I've got I've no. got uh, Aunt Betty on Facebook or whatever, and and I don't want her to see <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff, you know. And so I think just having a little bit of common sense, and then and then Jordan, just to throw this out here to to be obnoxious, I also have a Twitter just to be obnoxious and and talk shit about Democrats <laughs> because that's part of what I do. But I think that's what, that's what Twitter is for. I think it, it, there's some value in that, right? Yeah. I mean, come on. Um. No, that's awesome, man. I, I've got, uh, I don't want to keep you too long, man, but I, I have a couple questions about uh, working for Meat Eater, dude. I, I'm I'm fascinated by this because I've got a couple friends that work over there. Okay. Uh, specifically with those uh, goofballs over at Phelps. Love them both yeah. to death, Dirk and Jason. Um, What's it like working for Meat Eater, man? Have you ever like arm wrestled Steve Ranella? <laughs> I have not. I have not. Um, <laughs> I've loved it. I, I've loved it. And that's not just me, you know, um, saying what I need to say for my paycheck. Uh, in, case, in case HR is listening. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, it's great. I love it. It's the best. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's been really, it's been really good. And, and I think my experience has been a little bit different because I have been remote the whole time. Um, so I'm not in Bozeman. I'm not in the office every day. Um, I, I do kind of, I, I write my stuff. I also, I help uh, Ryan Callahan with his podcast. Um, so those are kind of my two main things. Um, but everyone I've worked with has been, has been really great. Um, Spencer Newharth uh, is the person that kind of brought me on. Um, and then I work really closely with, with Maggie Hudlow. And then of course with Cal um, and they've all been great, you know, no, oh, cool. no complaints. Uh, they, as a writer, I enjoy writing for them because I think they're a little more open to somewhat more off the wall topics than maybe some of the other outdoor publications. Um, and so it's really fun. You know, I, I can, I can pitch interesting, crazy, wacky kind of uh, like historical pieces, for example. And uh, they're like, yeah, sounds great. And so it's, it's a lot of fun. Do you have like a specific interest in, historical pieces or is that is that like what every writer has kind of a a a preference to niche or or i don't know if i'm even saying that right yeah what do you like to write about sure so um my main thing i'm eater is actually firearms so i'm kind of the the in-house gun writer um so that's my kind of bread and butter you might say um but then the the conservation related articles the policy related articles like the one we've been talking about um, that's also one of my, one of my main focuses. So I, I write quite a bit about that. Um, and then, you know, anytime there's a, I hear about a, a cool story, uh, I, I usually pitch it. Um, like, uh, we have this series called Barroom Banter, um, which is where a lot of these pieces fall into. Uh, and recently I wrote about, uh, the Australian military launching a, an official military campaign, uh, against emus in, in, uh, one of the, the states. So that was a lot of fun. What? Yeah. Yeah. Go. They, they launched a military campaign against emus. They did. They did because they were, they were devastating the crops. Um, I, I believe it was the, the wheat crops. Uh-huh. And so the farmers were like, you know, come help us, please. There are too many emus. And so someone had the, the fantastic idea of uh, going in with two machine guns. I think they imagined that the emus would just kind of stand still and they'd be able to kind of mow them down. But of course, they just, oh. they just ran away. Yeah, right? yeah. And it was this horrible, embarrassing dis- disaster. 
Um, and so it was <laughs> really, really fun to to research that and write about that. Oh man, I'd eat that kind of stuff up. That's fantastic. I I found your article too. The Great Emu War of nineteen thirty two. Is that the one? Yep, that's it. Oh, yep. sweet. I love that yep. kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, um, what's what's on the docket for the future, man? Are you you anything big plans outside of being uh, a writer for Meat Eater? Are you looking to write a book? Are you looking what what what's your writing career kind of hopes and dreams? Great question. Um, yeah, I I would love to to write a book at some point. Um, the topic is TBD right now. Uh, but yeah, I I can I can see myself doing that. Um. But but nothing real definite at the moment. Just okay. uh, yeah, continuing to to write for me either, um, and then uh, yeah, help help Cal with his podcast. Okay, and I'll, I'll I'm going to throw one more at you. Are you ready for this one? Mm-hmm. I have periodically people that write in uh, to me or this show um, asking about, hey, you know, I've I've always been interested in writing. I'd love to write for the outdoor space and you know i'm with eastman's and so we we do a lot of that kind of similar content creation you know uh mm-hmm. so i think they pose that question to me but what advice would you give a young individual looking to like work his or her way into the the writing or i'm sorry the, the outdoor sportsman community writing space yeah um so I, I think it's really important to write a lot and get a lot of writing practice. Um, so as an editor, I'm looking for someone who knows their, their topic, right? But can also submit really clean copy. Um, in other words, can submit articles that I don't have to edit a whole lot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, um, Cause that's really important. Like you, you can be a, 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 you know, the world's best whitetail hunter. Um, but if you submit an article that I have to spend two hours every time, you know, fixing, it's not going to work. Like it's, it's True. just not. Gonna work. Um, so, so focusing on that writing aspect of it, along with the being a subject matter expert, I think is really important. So, you know, find ways to write as much as you can. Um, find people who will who will edit your stuff and, uh, and offer you advice. Um, and then in terms of just kind of breaking in, so I'll tell you what, what I did, um, with meat eater. I, I was listening to the podcast, um, the, the main podcast, uh, and I heard Pat Durkin, who, um, is a pretty, pretty big outdoor writer in Wisconsin. Uh, yep. but he also writes, he writes for meat eater. He's on the podcast pretty frequently. Um, he mentioned that he likes getting, articles from kind of perspective, uh, you know, up and coming writers. And I had an article I was working on, I was trying to shop it around. Uh, and so I sent it to, to Pat. And kind of to my surprise, he got back to me, he gave me great advice, he, you know, uh, uh, he edited my article, gave me great advice, um, and then gave me uh, contact information for, for one of the editors, uh, for, for Spencer. I sent it to Spencer. Mm-hmm. He was like, this is not what we're looking for. <laughs> um, it was it was this like kind of uh, uh, personal essay, basically, about hog hunting. Um, he was like, this isn't what we're looking for, uh, but feel free to, to pitch me more stuff in the future. And oh, so, nice. yeah. And so I, I, I published that other article somewhere else, but then I, I pitched him articles. I pitched him ideas and he took a few um, and then. It was really just about developing that relationship. Again, always submitting articles that they didn't need to edit a whole lot. Um, you know, being really consistent, getting my stuff in on time, just being a really kind of reliable freelancer. Um, I did that for two years and then came on full time. Uh, so really it's just, you know, reach out to people, reach out to as many people as you can, have an idea, have an article. You can send people to show them that you know what you're doing. Um, and then, you know, just keep doing that until you, you kind of find a break. You know, where I, I knew you were going somewhere, man, when you're like, he, he sent back, not quite what we're looking for, but feel free to send me more stuff. When yeah. I've, when I've submitted to editors, uh, I, I don't get the second half of that. They just say, that's not what we're looking for. I yeah. wasn't getting the whole, but feel free to submit some more stuff. They were like, no, you suck, dude. Quit writing. <laughs> 
<laughs> until I until I was able to con a few people into publishing my articles. So uh, that's pretty cool, man. Um, yeah, that's solid advice for those of you listening that are maybe interested in that. That's really solid advice. Uh, write a lot and and build those relationships and and just keep submitting. I, I think it's great, man. Mm-hmm. Well, Jordan, um, I appreciate your perspective, man. Uh, it's been a good yeah. conversation. I I really appreciate you coming on the show and. Uh, I do want to give you I, I want to give you some big kudos for that article. Uh, again, guys, the article is called Inside the Campaign to Divorce Hunters from Wildlife Policy. Um, it, it's it really breaks down. I, I think every hunter and sportsman should be aware of this. They, they, you guys should read it. And I'm going to put it in the show notes so it's easily accessible for you. So, um, Jordan, good job on that article. Uh, you're a great writer, man. I just I, again, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Yeah, I. Thank you for those those kind words. Um, and yeah, I, I was really excited to get the invite. And uh, yeah, I, I had a great time. Awesome. Well, let's keep in touch, brother. Stick on the sure. line for just a minute. Yep. Sounds good. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.